Welcome to Straight Talk on Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chet Zelasko. Straight Talk on Health is a joint production with WGVU in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I examine the world of health, whether it's research that makes the news, another miracle diet, or a new food fad. I look at the science behind them and let you know whether this is something real or not. You can check out other things that I do on my website, drchet.com, and please sign up for my free emails. The ketogenic diet, or keto for short, has enjoyed a renaissance over the past few years. Now, it all began with the Atkins diet in the 1960s, a very low-carbohydrate diet. It was revived in the 2000s. There were stores that opened that focused on only low-carb foods. That didn't last. Now, keto has experienced another return. You can't walk down any aisle in a grocery store without seeing keto or keto-friendly products. With the pervasiveness of social media and internet gurus, there is a lot more keto promotion than ever before. You can become a certified keto coach. It's a real moneymaker for some, a way to pontificate for others. Will the low-carb diet stick this time? Who knows? The key may depend on whether the approach focuses on high-fat or high-protein. But let's get real for a second. It's really going to depend on the taste of low-carb products. Since this go-round, using nut flours like almond and coconut have reduced the dependence on high-carb wheat flour. As a result, the mouthfeel is better. That's great, but it doesn't really address the fat versus protein issue. Let me explain. Insulin is the most powerful hormone in the body. From a purely metabolic perspective, insulin, as the most powerful hormone in the body, affects the availability of sugar in the bloodstream. Understand, your blood sugar is regulated within a very tight range, generally 80 to 90 milligrams per deciliter. Normal for you might be 75. Normal for me has been 105 for over 10 years. It's just the way it is. But there is no question that it all comes down to how insulin works in your body. There has been a debate about the role of insulin on whether excess protein intake can contribute to high blood sugar levels. In the background reading for the podcast, this controversy has gone back a minimum of 30 years and maybe even longer. It's only until recently that the concept of insulin resistance and prediabetes has come to the forefront. As we now have better diagnostic and testing techniques, we know more today than we used to. And let's start with a term you've probably heard before in a health class called gluconeogenesis. What it means is making the sugar glucose from carbon remnants. Those remnants come from a variety of sources, but they are especially plentiful from the breakdown of proteins into amino acids. Actually, there's still a little more to the process. The amino acid has to lose the nitrogen group, and that's a process called deamination. But once that's done, the carbon structures that remain can be used to make glucose. Back to insulin. One of the things that insulin will do in the liver is prevent gluconeogenesis from occurring. Think about it. The last thing that someone wants is higher blood sugar. It makes absolute sense for the body to do that. 
But in order to function properly, there have to be active insulin receptors in the liver as that is primarily where gluconeogenesis occurs. In this case, the insulin isn't being used to move sugar from the bloodstream into cells as it is just about everywhere else in the body. Instead, within the liver, it is preventing, by some mechanism, gluconeogenesis from occurring. The issue that comes from insulin resistance is that the insulin can't stop the liver from producing more sugar via gluconeogenesis. The target cells are resistant to insulin for some reason, even in the liver, and as such, when too much protein is eaten, it can be converted into sugar by the liver. So even though someone may not be eating any sugar and relatively few starches, they can still end up with high blood sugar levels if they are insulin resistant. With 40% of the entire population of the United States obese, by definition, that means they are insulin resistant. They make plenty of insulin, you just can't use it effectively. Cells are resistant to it, and that includes the liver cells. Because higher protein can be part of a low-carb keto diet, there are plenty of carbon remnants available. That creates a scenario where the suppressing action of insulin doesn't happen in the liver, and the resultant gluconeogenesis increases blood sugar. The result is higher blood sugar, even though people have dramatically reduced their carbohydrate intake. What's the solution? The absolute best solution is going to be to lose weight, which should reverse the insulin resistance. But that's going to take a long time for most people. One thing that can be done if immediately to help with insulin resistance is to start an exercise program under doctor's supervision. There can be changes in insulin resistance in as little as 72 hours. And in this case, I know it personally because that's research I did when I was in grad school. So the answer to the question that I began with, could excess protein intake result in an increase in blood sugar? The answer is yes, and it is especially relevant to people that are overweight and sedentary. That's why weight loss via any particular dietary approach should always include an exercise component. But exercise by itself is not a good way to lose weight, unless you have four to six hours per day to dedicate to it. Maybe singers and dancers who practice for hours leading up to performance can do it. But you and I just can't burn enough calories to lose that much weight if you have a normal life. However, it is critical to all the other metabolic processes like insulin resistance and lipid metabolism. Exercise is a critical component of any weight loss program. So the next time you see someone pitching a program for weight loss that doesn't involve exercise, move right on by. Back to keto. In this go-round, the emphasis does seem to be on higher fat and about 10 to 20% of the calories from protein. I think that may work as long as someone doesn't overeat. The appeal of a higher-fat diet is that it can make you feel full longer. With a reasonable protein intake, the dark side of converting protein into sugars can be avoided. Just understand that the body takes time to change, not just the number on the scale, but also the internal processes that have developed over years of being overweight. Check with your healthcare professional and ask whether they think an insulin test is warranted. If your insulin levels are too high, that means you may be insulin resistant on the path to prediabetes. And if so, that would make you prone 
to elevated blood sugars if your protein intake goes way too high. Better to eat more low-carb vegetables, there are plenty of them, and moderate protein than to go to any type of extreme. Just don't forget, exercise is a critical component as well. You may just avoid the dark side of keto and end up leaner and healthier as well. I think every type of diet is appropriate in certain situations. The Mediterranean, the keto, and so all of them can be used in specific situations. It's understanding that they are tools to attain specific health goals. Pick the one that works for each approach to sustain your results when you actually do lose weight. I think it really beats the seafood diet. You know that one. See the food, eat the food. Until next time, this is Dr. Chet Zelasko saying, health is a choice, people. Choose wisely today and every day. Music